0: Well, over the past several weeks, the past, the previous six weeks to be precise, uh, we've explored the ongoing significance of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so we've spent the last several weeks unpacking the five summarizing slogan statements of the Reformation. We learned how with the inauguration of the Reformation on October 31st, 1517, That there was a recovery of biblical authority. That previous to it, the Bible was not the sole final authority. In fact, the Bible was hardly known. While preaching was allowed in Catholic churches prior to the Reformation, it was not required. So hundreds of thousands of European Christians would go to Mass every week, and many of them never even had the Bible proclaimed to them at all. And so the Reformation recovered the Word of God. It's not only our authority, it is our guide, it is our life, it is center, our center. But then the Reformation also recovered the notion that every good blessing we have from God, every gift that comes from God is by grace. We do nothing to contribute to God's disposition and attitude towards us. It is all a gift that is undeserved. So we assert that salvation is by grace alone. And then we unpack the notion of faith alone, how contrary to what Rome taught then and still teaches, your good works do not contribute to your right standing with God. The only instrumental cause of your right standing with God is your faith, which itself is a gift from God. And your good works, which flow from that, are the evidence of a supernatural work in your life. It is not the cause of life. So your salvation is by grace received through faith alone. But then we also looked how the Reformation recovered the centrality of Jesus, how there was a penitential system in place, a spirituality that really didn't make much of the finished, soul-sufficient work of Christ. In fact, it denied the sufficiency of what Christ had done. And the Reformation brought it back home to Jesus. He is the sum and center of all things. He is the absolute authority. He's the supreme governor, creator, ruler of the universe. Every one of us finds our being in and through him. Jesus is everything. And we can approach God in prayer with confidence because of the complete sufficiency of what Jesus has endured for us and given to us. So nothing can be added. In fact, it insults the perfection of his work to suggest that we can add to what he's already accomplished. And then last week, we learned fifthly that everything is to and for the glory of God. We saw how God works for His own glory and how we were created for His glory to to bask in it, to receive and absorb and reflect it. We learned how this is the chief end for which we were created and so we should pursue it. God gets all the credit, all the fame, all the recognition and it is good. So the Reformation recovered these five key things and then the Reformation ended. The reformers died. They went the way of the earth, and they were gathered up to their fathers. So what then? What then? Well, uh, as we conclude our Reformation series today, I want to look at what came then, and where we are now, and where we go from here. And I want to do so by considering an expression that has its origins in the late 1600s. So about a hundred years after the conclusion of the Reformation, or about 80 years after the conclusion of the Reformation, a saying was birthed that said that the ecclesia reformata, or the church reformed, Simper reformanda, is always being reformed reformed. The church reformed is always being reformed. Now this saying was not a summary of Reformation teaching per se. What happened in the years following the the conclusion of the Reformation when the last reformer breathed their last, closed their eyes and went to sleep in the dust. It was up to their successors to now, okay let's they really muddied up the waters for a little bit. They had to kick up, the, they had to kick up and stir the pot a little bit to, to recover these five key summaries. But what does this mean then for us? And so the post-Reformation era, that generation or two of people that came after the Reformers was keenly interested in unpacking what the significance of it was for all the other little doctrines and practices of the Christian faith. And so what arose then was a, an era in which theological precision was tantamount to necessary, n- necessary. And it's from this post-Reformation era where we get a lot of the doctrines or, or a lot of the statements of faith that we have come to cherish. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Synod of Dort with the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. But what some started noticing was happening was that even though we had theological precision, there was deadness in the pews. That the churches were starting to look basically like cultural German centers, Dutch centers, English centers. And we were kind of slowly, inch by inch, degree by degree, moving away from that pristine view that the Reformation recovered. And so, there emerged what's known in the Dutch community as a second Reformation. There was a pietist movement in the Lutheran Church. In the United Kingdom, there was the birth of what's known as the Puritan movement, which is one of the, we were one of the heirs of the Puritan movement as Presbyterians. And what this was, was an attempt to say, hey guys, look, the Reformation reclaimed Key correct doctrinal categories, the gospel, Christ, scripture, grace, the grand overarching theme of theology, the doctrine of the glory of God. It recovered all this. The post-Reformation era got us down to the nitty-gritty of doctrine and practice. What What does the Reformation mean for how we worship and stuff like that? But our hearts have wandered, and our churches are increasingly looking like the culture around us, operating with the same values. And so it was in that context that a theologian pastor in Holland with the last name of Van Lodenstein first said the words, the Reformed Church is always being reformed by the Word of God. The idea is that once you've recovered key, correct doctrine, you don't get to sit on your laurels. It takes constant vigilance to maintain a positive, correct course. If you've ever been on a boat, even easier than a car, it is easy for that boat to start drifting. So whoever is at the helm has got to keep a keen eye on where they're going and a keen hand on that, On that, well, the uh, the. That's right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to just start drifting off inch by inch, degree by degree, and before long, you're going to wonder where you're at. And then in our own hearts, my goodness, it is so hard to be consistent with the doctrine we profess. Have you ever noticed how we'll have this period of zeal and then it kind of just wanes And before long, we're living a different life from the doctrine that we profess. What's going on? And so the the cry of those who desire to maintain the Reformation is that we need to keep a watchful eye, lest what happened to the church in Ephesus, as recorded in Revelation chapter 2, happens to us. And what was that? They are doing all these great things. But they had left their first love. The love that they had had for Christ at first was gone. And they were operating primarily out of tradition rather than out of passion. And so, as we conclude our study of the Reformation, let's look at this notion of being continually reformed or brought back on course in both our church worship, our church doctrine, and our lives to be in conformity to what we profess to be true and real. There's this notion that has arisen ever since the World War II era that "simper Reformanda is shorthand for always being in flux. Since World War II, "simper Reformanda has been adopted by most of the mainline denominations to justify their being theologically adrift. It has become shorthand for the idea that all doctrine is simply a a profession of theological categories in the face of cultural realities. And so what that means for them is that as culture changes, it's the job of us to read this living book. And living in their mind means ever-changing, subject to reinterpretation, apart from any historical precedent or context, So that way, our doctrinal formulations jive with cultural realities. Which is exactly why the mainline denominations are always a few years behind whatever cultural trend is in our society. Most recently, of course, with the issue of same sex marriage. Suddenly they find it because that's how they do theology always reforming, always changing. Just a few verses down from our passage here in 2 Timothy 2, Paul actually warns us against becoming the kind of person who's always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. The idea inherent in the Reformation is that God has revealed himself in his word. And because God has revealed himself, truth is knowable which is why Jude can tell us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints it's been delivered you have it it's contained in this book it's knowable it's able to be understood and articulated we see this evidenced here in verses 1 and 2 of our passage where Paul says what you have heard from me In the presence of many witnesses, meaning I didn't just tell you this in the back corner, we didn't have a secret huddle where I shared some secret insight. No, what I'm sharing here is known by many people, and it's consistent with what many people know. In other words, it's common knowledge. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you, Timothy, entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. Now, the reason why Timothy, who has already proven himself faithful and trustworthy, needs to entrust that body of doctrine, that content, to men who are themselves faithful, underscores the precious nature of the truth that has been delivered. It's very easy to make subtle shifts or changes or alterations to it so that the net effect over generation is a profound change. So you entrust it to people who are faithful, who you can really have confidence that they're not going to mess with it, that they're going to protect and preserve it, that they're going to see themselves as stewards of that which belongs to God. Do you see yourself as a steward of that which belongs to God? The message that you have been entrusted with, this word that you have received, it's not yours. It's not mine. It's not Grace Covenant Churches. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's. And so we are to be stewards of it, faithfully managing it and dispensing it until he returns for, to claim his ownership. It's precious. We need to pass it on to others, even as Timothy was to pass it on to others. So in light of the Reformation... The centrality of the word, the centrality of grace and faith and Christ and God's glory. What does that mean for us? What does it mean? It means, I think principally, that we need to continually make sure that we're not construing things in such a way that we think it's all about us. That we do that we not do things or say things or act in such a way that we convey that ultimately it's about us. The credit we receive, the praise we get. We find ourselves in subjection to the word. And so we find ourselves both loosed and bound by it. We don't move beyond it. We don't invent things. It's one thing to bring reformation. It's another thing to maintain a reformation. It's one thing to go back and dust off old doctrines that have been Buried under centuries of falsehood, it's another thing to affect change in people. Which is why ongoing reformation in our lives is necessary. Now, as we contend for the faith, I would suggest that we have three principal dangers. Three threats to the purity of what we profess. These were experienced in the generations immediately following the Reformation, and in every generation since then. And I think we're, frankly, naive if we don't recognize the reality of their presence. The first danger to ongoing spiritual reformation in our church and in our lives is spiritual indifference, where we either don't believe that doctrine matters, we forget that what God has revealed has been revealed in order for him to get praise, and for us to obey, or frankly, we just have spiritual apathy. We're more concerned with the real as we, the natural realm, and we don't think that spiritual truths and eternality, that that's that big of a deal. Spiritual indifference causes us to make decisions, to adopt formulas, to adopt patterns, that ultimately shape our perspective and our sense of understanding of the real world. If God's truth is not before our minds, if we are indifferent to spiritual matters, we will slide and we will drift. It takes vigilance and diligence. The second thing is conformism. That is adopting the values and priorities of our culture. This happens all too easily. Where going to church simply becomes something that you do because you're a good member of society. That leads to spiritual deadness. When we bring the values of the world into the church and make being a church person synonymous with being a good citizen, we are at risk because in order to keep fleshly-minded people coming into the church, you inherently then are compelled to dial back on the rhetoric and on the gospel call. You know, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, the, the, the pilgrims, the, the religious separatists who ultimately came over, you know, and landed at Plymouth Rock, you know, that whole group of people, they spent several years in the Netherlands before coming over to the new world. And they were, they were just happy as a clam in the Netherlands until something started happening. They started having kids. And their kids were in Holland. And their kids were becoming Dutch. They were, they were doing what we think immigrants should do. They were assimilating. And the pilgrims didn't want assimilation to happen. They were proud of being English. And so because they didn't want their kids to go Dutch, they said, we've got to get out of the Netherlands. And so they temporarily went back to England. They would rather have endured a little bit of persecution than risk losing their cultural identity. And then, of course, they made their way to the New World where they could have their cake and eat it too. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. But I am saying, watch out lest you make your cultural values the center of all things, because that inherently comes into conflict with a gospel message where Jesus' gospel and Jesus' kingdom is transcultural, cross-cultural. In fact, you might say it's a different kind of culture altogether. But the third danger to ongoing spiritual reformation is formalism. Now, I'm the pastor of a church, and we are a formal church, but formalized religion is like fire. It's a blessing, but if it's misused, it can be deadly. Formalized religion gets us into the mindset of doing the things going through the rituals, and it can actually anesthetize us and inoculate us against recognizing the substance when it comes. That is why the religious leaders of Jesus' day were so blind, and his biggest criticisms were at the religious leaders. They had become ritualistic and formalist. As a result, their tradition And what they do, this is how worship looks. This is what we do when we want to approach God. This is how God expects us to behave and believe and act. And Jesus was a threat to that. And so when they saw Jesus, they totally missed the boat. They didn't see that he was the substance because they were so busy focusing on the shadow. When we gather to worship, let's remember that God is primarily concerned about the heart not the external. Some people may think that the way church is done, that this pew, this this pulpit needs to be right here in the middle. And if it were two feet over to the side, that's not the way it's done. And that would be a huge stumbling block. Be wary of formalism because it causes our hearts to be callous to spiritual truth and reality and the plight of those in need. Now in verse 3, Paul tells Timothy, To be a good soldier and share in the struggle of being a good soldier. Being a good soldier for Jesus is what each of you are called to be. Remember the song I sang it a year ago with our children? I'm in the Lord's army? Well, you may think you got out of Uncle Sam's army, that's fine. But you're in King Jesus' army. And he calls you to be a good soldier. And part of being a good soldier is sharing in that suffering. Get out of your mind the idea that following Jesus is supposed to be easy and painless. Whenever you read these kind of passages, share in the suffering as a good soldier, always, always, always hear the echoes of Jesus himself saying, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and come be my disciple. Remember The call to the Christian life is a call to arms, in a sense. That we are called to follow a king. And we are called to wage war against the flesh, the devil, and even the spiritual powers that oversee and enslave this world. Now in verses 4 through 6, Paul gives three different occupational metaphors to describe what being a good soldier looks like. And each of these three illustrations give us a glimpse of how we can maintain doctrinal and moral purity in the light of a reformation. The first, in verse 4, he talks about soldiers and how soldiers don't get entangled in civilian affairs. They're just single-mindedly trying to please the one who enlisted them. Just in case you're wondering, Jesus is the one who enlisted you. So like a good soldier, don't get worried up in occupational uh, endeavors of the civilian world, focus on pleasing Jesus. He's drawing attention to the single-minded mental focus it takes to please the one who enlisted you. Focus on Jesus. You're trying to please Jesus. Don't get distracted. There's a lot of things in this world that can distract you. A lot of worthy pursuits, perhaps. But you belong to Jesus, and you're called to please him. So focus, focus, focus on that. What we do, how we do it, how you live your life, how you prioritize your time, your energy, your money. Are you focused on pleasing Jesus all the time like a good soldier? If you do that, you won't drift. Second, he compares us to athletes. Now in other passages, Paul brings up the metaphor of an athlete to focus on the hard work it takes to succeed. How he has to, he beats his body into subjection. I mean, talking about the hard work it takes. Well, here the focus is not on the hard work. In verse 5 here, the focus is on the fact that if they don't compete according to the rules, they won't win. In other words, you can engage in all the self-discipline. You can put in all the time, the energy, the effort. You can do all the hard work, but if you don't follow the rules, it's for nothing. And what are the rules? Well, it's in here. You see in verse 5 him implicitly reminding us of sola scriptura the rules. You want to know how to please God? Do this, read this. If we don't follow the rules, all of our efforts are in vain. So keep our eye on the rule book so we don't drift to the left. Or to the right. Now, in the midst of a world with devils filled and threats that seem to want to undo us, there is a bit of good news, and he reminds us of this in verse six with the farmer metaphor. He talks about the farmer as being hardworking. Now, being a farmer is hard work, uh, even. Nowadays, when a, when a farmer in the Midwest can sit in a combine and, and drive for hours and hours and days, it's still hard work. But back in the day, I mean, they were out physically breaking up ground, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing the whole nine yards by hand. It was even more hard, more difficult. But that farmer who's hardworking, he has a right to the fruit. That come from his labors. Remember, remember, remember. God is not treating you like a slave. He doesn't just beat you down and expect, 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 and not promise any sort of reward. You are promised by God glory, vindication, honor, and life. That's why, in the next several verses, Paul talks about stressing on. We talked about it last week. You were made for glory, and you are going to partake of the divine nature, according to 2 Peter. You're going to reflect all of God's perfections back to him, to his praise. God is glorified to glorify the people who honor him. So hold on. Look forward, work hard, knowing that you're running for a purpose. It's not in vain. Because as soon as you lose sight of the purpose for which you're running, guess what you're going to be tempted to do? Stop and throw up your hands. I'm wasting my time. Keep in mind that God has promised you reward. That's what Paul does in verses 8 through 13. The knowledge that there's this reward coming drives him on. For the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the shame and scorn of the cross. Okay? You are promised reward. Now, what people get mixed up in is they want the reward now. No, now, for right now, you're the hard-working farmer in the field, sowing, reaping, all that stuff. You're doing the work now. It's later comes the reward. Just like Jesus, cross first, glory later. God didn't come into this world. Jesus didn't assume flesh to save us from all the troubles of life. In the midst of the troubles of life, that's our mission field. That's the field that we're supposed to do our labor in, and we get the reward later. So, try to please Jesus. Follow the rule book. Don't lose sight of the hope we have of reward. You're not running in vain. Armed with that, we'll be able to resist the compelling forces that have like a strong gravitational pull to to redirect us away from God. We must resist formalism. We must resist conformism. And we must resist spiritual indifference. If we do that, then we can maintain a right course. And that we will find ourselves... Presented to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed because we've rightly handled the word of truth. Let's do that, brothers and sisters. That's what the Reformation was about. That's the faith we've inherited, and that's the faith that we are expected to pass on when we close our eyes. And then God will raise up men and women from that generation to carry it on. But for now, let's run and not grow weary. Let's pray.